Hello, and welcome to the Inequality Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Durloff, the director of the Stone Center for Research on Wealth, Inequality, and Mobility. Thanks for joining us. Well, I'm very, very pleased to introduce Shi Song as today's guest. She is professor of sociology at the University of Pennsylvania and was previously on the faculty here at the University of Chicago. It's to my great regret that I'm having the conversation with her in her current affiliation. By any measure, she is one of the great sociologists of her generation. She has done foundational work on the methodologies of intergenerational mobility, as well as exploring remarkable data sets spanning both long-run aspects of the United States as well as China. She is the exemplar of the combination of methodological rigor with uh, with a, the sort of touch of creativity that's necessary to to answer uh, fundamental questions. So she, it's a very much welcome to today's podcast. Thanks, Stephen, for having me. I'm very excited about this. So by way of background, I'll just simply say that uh, there is something of a, uh, a distinction between the way sociologists study intergenerational mobility and economists study intergenerational mobility. And so she, I think it would be particularly valuable if you could give us an overview of what you would say are the main contours of intergenerational occupational mobility in the United States. What, what sort of facts would you want uh, somebody to take home? Yeah, there is a short answer and there's a long answer. The short answer is in the United States. So overall, intergenerational mobility has declined since the, around the 1900. So if we look at in the 19th century to the 20th century, are uh, driven by the industrialization and the decline of the agricultural sector. So our many our children of peasants and our farmers move to cities and become manufacturing workers. So that promoted intergenerational mobility. But since around 1940s, particularly after the World War II, so intergenerational occupational mobility has been surprisingly stable in the United States. Are there particular contours of the 19th century that you would identify especially interesting? During that period, I would say there are a lot of changes, you know, the the Gilded Age, you know, many people believe that drove up intergenerational immobility or inheritance or status. Mm-hmm. The society became more uh, unequal. But overall, there are also, uh, I mentioned, uh, our industrialization that is more like a one-way direction that drove up intergenerational mobility. But also, I believe other changes related to immigration or racial composition and also great blacks and later the great migration. All these things add up to the overall trend that we have mm-hmm. seen in the United States. And where's the role of the evolution of public education? Is that how, how might we think about mm-hmm. that as a driver of mobility? Right, yeah. Well, so education plays a very important role in intergenerational mobility. So this is related to something we, we talk a lot about before, about the structural mobility and the exchange mobility. So the expansion, the high school movement, and later the expansion of the higher education. So all these things opened up more mo- opportunities for children from disadvantaged families to receive higher education. And they also provided more opportunities for them to 
achieve upward mobility. So typically we call this as structural mobility. So we just make the pie bigger. But on the other hand, well, excluding the structural changes, there is also exchange mobility, thinking about it as zero-sum game. So if one person moves up, another person would move down. So in many sociological studies, people are more concerned about exchange mobility rather than structural mobility because structural mobility may be very different across different periods or across countries because they have different social context. But exchange mobility is the component of mobility people think can measure the social openness, so it's overall amount of social fluidity. One of the areas that you've been a you know, a fundamental contributor is occupational mobility in China. And so could you sort of describe your work and what the uh, major empirical messages might be? Yeah, so in one of our recent studies, we found that uh, since the market transition in China, as China transitioned from a state socialism to now market-oriented economy, overall mobility has increased. So there are more upward mobility opportunities. But if we control for the structural mobility, only focus on exchange mobility, it has declined. So many people in China now worry about the rigidity of the, the system. So there are fewer opportunities for children born in rural areas or from poor families to attend college and then to enter our high status jobs. So that concern is real. And this is also similar to some findings by our, your former colleague Ted Gerber and Mike Howd based on evidence from Russia. So during Russian's market transition, they also observed the same trend of this declining mobility. So now it's harder for children to experience upward mobility, and there are more downward mobility, and there is more continuity between parents and offspring in their social status. Many people believe that the current declining mobility is a result of economic growth. So as we become richer, so this is a consequence that we have to uh, be bear with. But the government haven't really thought about all these negative consequences for increasing rigidity or declining mobility. But overall, I would say things can be improved. So it's not necessarily uh, need to be what people observe now, that where there are, are greater barriers between children born in rural and urban areas. And I think it has become the agenda of the Chinese government in more recent years. I have seen some of those propaganda or those slogans you want to see. They want to promote social mobility. So in our conversation so far, we've been talking about mobility for the, whole, the entire population of a country. That, of course, leads to the question about groups within a country. And so could you talk a bit about uh, the differences between black and white occupational mobility and what, what is known currently and what, what needs to be known? Yeah, surprisingly, uh, I would say the majority of our understanding of social mobility are drawn from whites, particularly native-born whites, given that the black sample is very small in most uh, social surveys. So, and often you don't really get 
a representative sample of the black population. Uh, like for some of our work, so we use linked historical data. So it's based on surnames. So the, the black population is underrepresented and many of them cannot be linked. So for now, I think people started to examine black-white differences. And overall, I would say a lot of our conclusions developed based on the uh, white and native-born sample may not hold for the black sample and for the, the immigrant population. So one phenomenon, and you should correct me if I'm exaggerating where the sociology literature is, is the observation that there's greater downward occupational mobility among African Americans than among whites. I bring that up because a recent work by Rosh Chetty in looking at um, location-specific intergenerational mobility found something that actually was parallel to that, which is the probability of downward income rank mobility was substantially higher among black families than white families. Yeah, you mentioned a great point. So back in the 1960s and 70s, so Otis Dudley Duncan are one of the pioneers in social mobility study in sociology have shown that blacks have a higher mobility than whites. So some people may think, oh, higher mobility means that they have more opportunity or they have uh, more chance to uh, outperform their parents, but actually that's not the case. So higher mobility means that they are more likely to experience downward mobility and their social attainment are less dependent on their family backgrounds. So in many ways, the family influence on their children are weaker among the black samples and among the, the white sample. And even if, say, for blacks who are likely achieved high social status, it's more difficult for them to preserve their advantages. So you brought up the interesting question of immigrants and, and mobility. One of the uh, messages that one would take from any study of immigrants, of course, is the mobility rates are extremely high. And so when one does cross-country comparisons says the United States is higher or lower than another country, you have to ask, for who? If I looked at between black-white inequality, we'd have a t you know the answer would be profoundly disturbing. If you think about immigrants, you may have a very different answer. So I actually wanted to know um, if you could say a bit about what sort of heterogeneities do we see across immigrant groups, or and to what or to what extent do we see uniformity of rap of very substantial uh, occupational mobility? Yeah, I think overall there are higher intergenerational mobility among immigrants than among natives. But it's not only because they are probably more motivated, but probably also because they are highly selective, you know. So immigrants who migrated to the U.S. will be their peers who stayed in their home country. And there is a, a huge amount of heterogeneity, I believe, although there is very little data so far for people to document that. So Leah Bustan, you know, so yeah. uh, she has done some work documenting immigrants of European origins, but also, of course, for Asian Americans or immigrants from Africa. So there is also a huge amount of heterogeneity. I think those are, are being currently actively studied by sociologists, particularly who study race, ethnicity, and migration. Another dimension, of, which is, of course, fundamental in, in thinking about groups and occupational mobility is gender. Mm -hmm. And so with reference to uh, the 20th century in the United States, for example, 
what sort of distinctions in terms of mobility between men and women uh, might you identify? Yeah, well, uh, traditionally, uh, people just uh, study men, particularly for occupational mobility, because uh, our females' labor force participation was low in the early 20th century or, or before that. So now as women receive more education and around 2000, so women are now more likely to enter college than men. So our women's mobility become also part of the research agenda. Mm -hmm. And overall, women's mobility is higher than men, probably also because daughters are less likely to follow their parents' footsteps. So they may choose our other careers, or, or it may depend on, well, how we measure mobility. If we just measure it based on, say, occupations, we may not see the, the linkage, intergenerational linkage. But say, if your parents are physicians or doctors, their, their daughters may become, say, nurses. You may think it's intergenerational dissimilarity, but they still belong to the same industry. Yeah. In the study of gender and, and, and occupational mobility, labor force participation would seem to be uh, a complexity that ha should be part of the process. And so, unfortunately, in the world I was born in, you know, the status of, of for men, their self-worth being associated with having a non-working, uh, well, working at home for no pay spouse was very high. And so mm -hmm. you could have imagined that what you saw is the, the dynamics were that working mothers had non-working daughters. And from the and again within that cultural milieu, that may have been perceived as occupational mobility, as upward mobility. Mm -hmm. uh, is that something that's been explicitly studied? Not yet. You mean so our transition in and out of the labor force yes. as part yes. of the mobility process yes. itself? I think that's super important. But well, so far I haven't seen any studies that include our out of the labor force as part of the so our. The mobility analysis. Okay. Yeah, I mean, with, with with no expertise, I would think that thinking about gender dynamics and inequality, that there would be um, scope for some additional insights into uh, how the overall mobility process works. Because I, as I said, that the you know the, the world I was born in had one set of norms, and happily, my daughter is an adult in a world of different norms. Uh, but that there may be some value uh, to that as a research program. One of the areas where you've been a, uh, a world leader is multi-generational mobility models other, and, or, and the study of it empirically. In other words, the idea that uh, there are much more complicated patterns of dynamics within, within family dynasties than, than simply parent-child uh, parent pairs. Could you tell us about your work? And, uh, and then I'll follow up with a few questions. Yeah, well, so our, I know both of us are fans of Markov chain models. Um, so in the earlier days, sociologists have adapted this theory to explain social mobility. So some believe that our multi-generational mobility, so mobility across more than three generations, it's like a Markov chain process. So all the multi-generational relationships can be summarized by two-generation relationships like between parents and offspring. So that means if we know how grandparents influence parents and how parents influence children, then we can understand how grandparents influence their grandchildren because all the influences have to pass through the parent generation. But now as we have more data and multi-generational re relationships become more important because people live longer, you know, so the overlap in more lifetimes with their grandchildren, great-grandchildren, or their 
other extended family members. So people started to understand whether there are no Markovian type of in influence that can skip generations and can directly say passing through, say, grandparents to grandchildren, or even for remote ancestors who you have never met, whether they still can be your role models, or if there is still some legacy influences, or if they set up, say, trust funds for you that can in, uh, influence your social achievement, you know, that doesn't have to depend on how well your, your parents are doing. So what's the state of uh, evidence for the United States? And then I'll ask you about China. Yeah, well, so for the United States, our, in the earlier days, our, like Andrew Cherning has some work that shows our American parents follow this, like a Markovian influence. So they follow this non-interference rule. So mm. you should let your children to educate your grandchildren. So don't try to interfere with this process. But as we know, because of the, the rise of single-parent families, and many grandparents are very involved in raising their grandchildren. So uh, for more recent evidence, people have shown that grandparents play very important influence in their grandchildren's educational performance, their career development, their earnings, and particularly for two-parent families, children from two-parent families, they still are in touch with or for grandparents, whereas for children from single-parent families, sometimes they lose contact with one set of their grandparents, particularly, say, the paternal grandparents. So in many ways, so grandparents become more important, and there are social reasons, but there are also demographic reasons because of demographic transitions. The other thing I wanted to ask you about there is heterogeneity across countries. I would say my stereotype uh, for the United States compared to other countries is that um, that the ties between grandparents and children are are attenuated. Anecdotally, my wife is uh, was born in the Soviet Union and, and lived much of her life there. Her expectations or her her view of her role as a grandparent is completely different than the world I grew up in uh -huh. because it's simply much deeper, much richer in terms of what she wants to do for the education of grandchildren, the role she wants to play in terms of uh, of raising them. And so, are there studies that try to compare the degrees of occupational, or sorry, the degrees of multi-generational mobility across countries that lead to, in which you get the the prediction I've referred to. In other words, that the United States, where I'm asserting, and you're the expert on it, so you can tell me I'm wrong, uh, that there are thinner family ties than other countries, that you in fact see more multi-generational dependence than in the American case. Yeah, well, so far there is still mixed evidence about grandparents' inf uh, influences particularly because there are cultural differences and our stronger grandparent influence are observed in East Asian, East Asian societies and also Russia. <laughs> when I was in graduate school, we lived in the family housing and you will see also grandparents who lived with their grandchildren are immigrants or either from China, India, or from Russia. And they form a community. And there is weaker evidence from Scandinavian countries. Interesting. So I've teased you on a number of occasions that one of the benefits of studying China is you have more data because, <laughs> yeah. because you have data from many generations. So could you talk about the work on multi-generational mobility in China? And, and also please say something about the nature of, the, of data that are uniquely available. 
Yeah, so uh, the data I used uh, were originally compiled by James Lee, who is a historian and demographer, uh, now at Hong Kong University of Science and Technology, and also Cameron Campbell, who was at UCLA before he moved to HKUST. So they compiled a huge amount of data from Chinese genealogies and also administrative like census records. So the genealogy data is called the imperial genealogy from the last imperial dynasty of China. It's called the Qin dynasty, which I think ran from about 1600 to the very early 20th century. Um, so the dynasty was founded by a very powerful man called Nuer Hachi. So once he became the emperor, he decided to create a genealogy not only for his children, but also for all the children and descendants of his male cousins and his, his brothers. So they were called the five founders of the Qing dynasty. So, so the government followed all their descendants and they received allowance from the government. So they followed them over more than 300 years. And there are, for some of the families, they reproduced faster and also had more children, or, or the men had more wives or concubines. So they, in one of the lineages, we found more than 16 generations. So we follow them over the 300 years. So that's one set of the data. Another set is very similar to the US census for tax purposes. So some of the local government in China, in Liaoling province, they are collected just the census forms and for those who live in the same region, so you can follow them. So it's collected every three years. So they link to those our census records across time, then follow panel of households and then lineages. So this data provide us with our valuable information to follow families over more than 200 or even 300 years, so which has been very are rare in U.S. or in some other countries because, well, for the U.S., there are more immigration and there is less stability over time. I wanted to go back to the issue of, of occupational mobility and gender to ask about STEM occupations because mm -hmm. when you were talking, a thing that struck me in thinking, you know, against the background of, of the concerns about lack of, of female participation in STEMs. This would seem to be an ideal place where you would see the role, importance of role models. In other words, are mothers with STEM occupations, does that you know, qualitatively change the probability of the children beyond the usual immobility or persistence that, that you and, and many others have studied? Has that been a focus? So in terms of intergenerational transmission of STEM occupations, I think there is also this gender asymmetry. So if the mother is in a STEM occupation, mother may have a stronger influence on the daughter than on son, and typically mm -hmm. son will be more influenced by their fathers. So if we can promote more women to enter STEM occupations, so that will not only affect their own generation, but I think there will be intergenerational implications. Have, the, have these magnitudes been measured? In other words, can one 
are there stati- calculations that indicate the the strength of the ability of STEM participation by mothers in producing it in their in their daughters? Yes, in a recent PNAS paper written by Lin Zhu and David Glasky, they analyzed how this intergenerational this transmission of STEM occupations, and particularly this right. our gender asymmetry, contribute to occupational segregation, changes in the segregation over time. So I wanted to finish our conversation with... Uh, with a focus on your work linking intergenerational and intergenerational mobility. Your paper with Si Wei Cheng was very influential in my own thinking, and as far as I know, it really is unique in trying to map the trajectories of uh, parental incomes across generations. So could you uh, tell us about that work and kind of what next steps are? Yeah, I think overall our economists have substantially studied life cycle bias, you know, so why a person's earnings follow typically an S-shaped curve or a quadratic form that you typically start with a lower income when you are young and then eventually you will reach a peak of your earnings around your uh, mid or late careers. So we're motivated by this human capital development theory to think about how our parents and offspring are resemble each other in their earnings, not only in terms of the overall levels of earnings, but also the shapes of their earnings trajectories. Uh, and we found that, well, intergenerational mobility or the amount of similarity between parents and offspring depends on the ages and life stages that we measure parents and their offspring's earnings. And overall, in our own study, we found that the strongest association happens around parents' late career and children's early career. So probably because, you know, parents reached the prime age of their career and typically the highest social status over their career. And they can help their children to launch their career. I think one of the, the the things I wanted to say with reference to your work was that one of the complications, of course, in doing empirical work in social science is it has to be done through the lens of, st- of a choice of a statistical model. Mm-hmm. And we often mm-hmm. don't have principled theories for choosing them. And so I think when you have cases where very different lenses are chosen, but you see the same picture, that's, a, that's, that, that's an important confirmation. That's great. Yeah. So I know we used uh, some uh, strong assumptions about uh, the functional forms of their earnings development. But one thing I personally found the most interesting finding from our paper is about the volatility. So volatility is not really about the shape, but uh, about, you know, the instability mm-hmm. of a person's career. Say the parents changed many jobs many times or parents transitioned out and in of the labor force multiple times, you will see that the parents have a very volatile career or earnings or development. And we found that has also intergenerational implications. So children typically will also have high volatility in their earnings when they have parents who had yeah. such are yeah. high volatility. It's fascinating for several reasons. One of them is you might ask about how the, the dynamics of uh, intergenerational transmission of risk aversion and so if you grow up in an environment in which parents do well, but they assume a lot of risk, that's one reason you could have volatility. And perhaps that creates, if you'll forgive me, the entrepreneurial spirit uh, in that's the next true. generation. Yeah. In contrast, if the source of the volatility were uh, you know, periods of disadvantage, 
then you could imagine very risk-averse behavior in the next generation. So I think I think you're, the finding UNC Way found it, it's really it opens up different questions because ultimately you know we're one wants to go want to have the measurements that are correct on mobility, but also thinking about the mechanisms. And so I think part of the beauty yeah. of the work that you've done there and in many of the papers is that by identifying these these salient f empirical phenomena, they, uh, they mean we need to go back and think about how we formulate the, the theories of, of mobility. So that's that's part of where the inspiration, you, that's part of the inspiration you generate. I, I like your explanation of risk taking or risk aversion. It may be related to parents and children's personality or their genetic characters but it can also be related to their occupations. You know, so you mentioned entrepreneurship or they are self-employed or they own business or they are in some of the occupations, say hedge fund traders. Those occupations, typically you will see more volatile earnings. So they are both more are genetic versus environment, you know, so nature versus nurture or these different factors that can explain it. And I, and I should mention an argument that was made to me by uh, uh, Ross Stolzenberg uh, about this phenomena in which he, he said he thought an important thing in thinking about mobility and volatility is that children of affluent families, they can take risks simply because they have an insurance policy. It's called their parents. Mm -hmm. And so in thinking about intergenerational mobility and the nonlinearities in it, that something that's being missed perhaps is in the focus on just you know average income and average income, things like that, is that... People are, again, and this is back to your occupational work. People are on trajectories. Mm -hmm. Trajectories involve exploration, learning what you're good at, taking risks, et cetera. And so understanding, you know, parental wealth, the capacity of parents to act as de facto insurance mechanisms may speak a lot to what risks you're taking, the willingness to be an entrepreneur, et cetera. And that that, again, is how the work you, you know, your findings on volatility, they, they force us to reconsider the mechanisms. Mm-hmm. Well, she, thank you so much. Uh, as always, whenever I talk to you, I learn a lot, and so I'm very grateful. Oh, I really enjoy this conversation. I hope we can just uh, sit here and talk for two more hours. <laughs> well, we could, but I, I, I think the audience might have a different uh, tolerance. <laughs> Anyways, thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks again to Dr. Song for her incredibly valuable insights. Early on in the conversation, Dr. Song described the interaction between China's efforts to spur economic growth and the effects those efforts had on mobility. There are plenty of examples of the Chinese government undertaking incredibly ambitious projects aimed at bringing up the country's economy and putting it on par with other, more industrialized nations. These projects include Mao Zedong's Great Leap Forward, Deng Xiaoping's Reform and Opening Up, and Xi Jinping's Belt and Road Initiative, to name just a few. Starting around the 1970s, though, Chinese officials' priorities centered around something else, curbing overpopulation. These officials feared that overpopulation would harm the environment, deprive people of resources, and even stunt economic development. So at around the same time that Deng Xiaoping officially started the Reform and Opening Up movement in 1978, a movement that would indeed lead to unprecedented economic growth, his government also rolled out another unprecedented initiative, the One Child Policy. 
in what is perhaps the most severe and extensive family planning effort undertaken by any country, the one-child policy has had staggering effects on China's economy, society, and its families. But the outcomes we're going to focus on for this segment are its impacts on intergenerational mobility. Did limiting the number of children and families lead to successive generations being more mobile or less mobile? Well, it's complicated. It turns out that when you're talking about large-scale, complex national programs like the one-child policy, the answers are never simple and straightforward. Fortunately, though, I was able to untangle all of this with the help of Dr. Li Xingli, professor at Peking University's China Center for Economic Research, an expert on the one-child policy, and an affiliate of the Stone Center. First, let's revisit some of the details core to the policy. It was rolled out around the late 1970s and early 1980s, though sources differ slightly on a precise starting date. It was in response to fears of rampant overpopulation, many of which were exaggerated or unfounded. And perhaps contrary to popular belief, the one-child policy was not uniformly enforced. Generally speaking, it was more strictly enforced in urban areas than it was in rural areas, a practice that was informally referred to as the 1.5-child policy. Here's Dr. Lee. If you are from the rural area and your first child is a girl, then you, you are allowed to have a second one. Because this kind of uh, some preference in China quite popular. So people prefer to have a son. So uh, it was allowed to have a, a second child. The first one, if it's a girl, rural couples were allowed to have a second one. But while exceptions existed, there was less flexibility and penalties for non-compliance. Families that exceeded the policy, for example, were forced to pay a fine, something that was known as a social maintenance fee. And those fines could be steep. According to Dr. Lee, they ranged anywhere from half of a family's annual income to more than five times their annual income. And people with official government jobs were forbidden from having a second child, even if they were willing to pay the fine. For them, a second child could get them fired. There's no shortage of media reports and first-hand accounts detailing the impacts of the one-child policy. But what about the effects it had on intergenerational mobility? There's been less focus on this topic, and academic studies seem to reach contradictory conclusions. First, let's do some level setting as it relates to terminology. Intergenerational mobility, for instance, does not necessarily mean higher incomes or higher levels of educational attainment across generations. Higher incomes and successive generations would represent high upward mobility. But it's possible, and much less fortunate, to have high levels of downward mobility, equating to successive generations with lower incomes and lower educational attainment. And Dr. Song actually touched on this briefly during the interview. This brings up two other key terms intergenerational persistence, and intergenerational elasticity. Let's look at elasticity first. In terms of mobility, what exactly does this mean? Again, here's Dr. Lee. Uh, simply speaking, it is a correlation between children and parents. So a higher intergenerational elasticity means a stronger link uh, between parents and family uh, and children's status. The status could refer to uh, either income uh, or education or other sort of social status indicators. Uh, we know that the 
a society is more mobile uh, if the intergenerational mobility is high, which also means the so-called intergenerational uh, elasticity is low. So there's two things, right? One is intergenerational mobility. The other is called IGE or intergenerational elasticity. And as for the other term, intergenerational persistence, this is essentially the same thing as elasticity. It's a measure of how statuses stay the same, or persist, across generations. If children and grandchildren live in similar neighborhoods with similar paying jobs and with similar levels of education compared to their parents, then there is a high degree of persistence and a high degree of elasticity. Just remember that elasticity and persistence move in opposite directions of mobility. When mobility is high, elasticity and persistence are low, and vice versa. Okay, so now the research. One study, published by the IZA Institute of Labor Economics, argues that, by exacerbating trends in inequality across groups of people, the one-child policy actually decreased intergenerational mobility. This study focused on the difference in policy enforcement between urban and rural groups. Recall the so-called 1.5-child policy that allowed rural families the opportunities to have more than one child under certain circumstances. With urban families being more restricted in the number of children they could have, one consequence is that they were able to spend more resources on their sole child compared to rural families. This is actually a real-world example of a theory of parental development that has its origins here at the University of Chicago. I think it dates back to the very famous theory by Gary Becker. So Becker's theory on human capital tells us that there exists the so-called quantity-quality trade-off, which means the more children you have, the fewer resources you can devote it to each of them. So average quality of children may be worse. What this paper argues is that the difference in policy enforcement between these two groups of families led to a wider gap in the capital those groups could invest in each child, leading to an overall decrease in intergenerational income mobility. Thinking in terms of persistence, urban families experienced upward mobility while rural families experienced more persistence. Their status did not change as much as the urban families. And what does Dr. Lee think about the results? Did they pass muster? Uh, the, the study is quite rigorous, but uh, this is only one channel. So their paper focuses on this one channel, which is uh, differential fertility. There are other channels that are possibly affect uh, intergenerational mobility uh, caused by one-child policy. So what about those other channels? In a contrasting study published by the National Bureau of Economic Research, its authors argued that the one-child policy actually increased intergenerational mobility. Or, more precisely, it decreased persistence. And it did so through three separate channels. Through one channel, the one-child policy weakened what are called elite family heirships. Before the policy had been enacted, rich families tended to have many children. And with many children, it was easier for those families to maintain their wealth by having their offspring marry the offspring of a different wealthy family. However, most of those families were also government officials. So when the one-child policy went into effect, they were among the most scrutinized. With fewer wealthy children, it became less likely that those families could intermarry. This, in turn, led to a reduction in economic persistence. Ultimately, 
so the authors argue, a wealthy child would end up marrying a child of lower economic status, leading to increased downward mobility for these families. What does Dr. Lee think about this theory? I think that one makes sense. It's very interesting because it's a long determinants of uh, social mobility. But specific to China, I think there are different things that could affect the inheritance of uh, elite family, the so-called heirship. The cultural revolution could be more important because, you know, in cultural revolution, elite families were broken down. Their children were totally deprived of equal opportunities. So it's kind of upside down. Uh, so that in that kind of situation, the society is so mobile. Through another channel, the one-child policy allowed poorer families to concentrate their resources more than wealthier families. The logic here goes that poor families would have been more likely to obey the policy because they were less able to pay the penalty, whereas rich families had more money and that made them more likely to disregard the fee. Note that this theory seems to directly conflict with the one presented in the previous paper. As we have pointed out, poor families can have multiple children, especially in rural areas. Right? So I think the author did not consider this so-called differential uh, fertility response. Finally, the study posited that lower returns to education resulting from the policy also contributed to decreased persistence, although this one is particularly confounding. With a decreased population came a decrease in the labor supply, especially for low-wage jobs. To maintain an adequate supply of workers, employers had to pay these workers more money, thus narrowing that gap between them and higher skilled workers. So wages for low skilled workers rose while wages for high skilled workers remained the same, meaning that returns to education for those high skilled workers, relatively speaking, actually dropped, or so the theory goes. But Dr. Lee is not convinced. This theory seems to assume that wages for high earners did not improve during this time. But as he points out, returns to education grew for society as a whole. I would say this one is totally wrong. Studies had found that return to education is increasing throughout those years. So studies have found that the return of one additional year to, to wage increase is about 2 point something percent from the beginning of the one-child policy. And it rised to almost 9% for each additional year of education. So that's a huge increase of return to education. Taking this all in, it appears that the one-child policy may have played a larger role in decreasing intergenerational mobility. But it's important to note that it's very possible it could have also played a role in increasing it. Again, these studies collectively looked at the impact of the policy through defined sets of channels. Given the wide implementation and huge influence on social and family development, it should come as little surprise that its impacts on mobility could be both positive and negative. And while I had the opportunity, I also asked Dr. Lee about something else, something I didn't come across in a research paper. It's called the 421 rule, and it's a relatively recent phenomenon in how modern Chinese families have become structured as a consequence of the one-child policy. What it means is that one child is responsible, or will be responsible for, the care of two parents and four grandparents. Children will need to expend more resources on their parents and grandparents than ever before, 
leaving them with fewer resources that they can devote to themselves and their own children, a sort of inversion on that Gary Becker theory of quantity-quality trade-offs. And Dr. Lee is feeling this firsthand. So I, I'm the only uh, child of my parents. My wife is also the only child of her parents. And we have now have two children. You know, we have a lot of burden in, in this. One. So that reflects the society's imbalance. So this generation, one child generation, will have a huge burden in terms of taking care of their parents and taking care of their children. And this will affect the saving rate, consumption of Chinese people. Uh, I think the macroeconomic implication is quite important. The one-child policy was fully abandoned in 2016, with all couples being allowed to have two children. Later in 2021, the Chinese government went a step further. It is now allowed and even encouraged for families to have three children. But this change in policy doesn't change the economic situation for these families. Without very robust monetary incentives for having children or equally robust national support for the elderly, Chinese parents will not be inclined to increase the size of their families. What was once law has now become a rigid social norm, and that could lead to greater intergenerational persistence and lowered economic mobility for generations to come. Special thanks to Dr. Li Xing Li for lending his expertise. More information about the one-child policy, including links to the two papers discussed, can be found in the show notes. The Inequality Podcast is a production of the Stone Center for Research on Wealth Inequality and Mobility at the University of Chicago. It is hosted by myself, Stephen Durloff, along with Damong Jones, Jeffrey Wadka, and Ariel Khalil. This episode was recorded, sound engineered, and produced by Eric Gepper with support from Gerardo Espinal Franco. Thanks as well to the Center's Executive Director, Grace Hammond, for all her support. Please consider liking, subscribing, and sharing this podcast among your friends, and send any questions or feedback to ucstonecenter at gmail.com. That's all for now. Thanks for joining us.